You're clocked out. We're locked in. You're listening to Crunch Time with Miguez and Mesh here on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Welcome in to a Thursday edition of Crunch Time here on the game. It's 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, your home for the LSU Tigers and the World Series champion. Houston Astros, we're broadcasting live from the Evco Development Studios here in Upper Lafayette. Evco Development is a civil construction company that specializes in new multifamily construction. The game hotline is 337-706-0111. The New Orleans Pelicans making some interesting moves today. What does that spell for their future in the coming weeks? Also, the Houston Astros... Getting a walk-off in a very odd way. Uh, We'll recap that game. And we have the 2024 opponents list for LSU football. We don't know the exact order that they're going to be played in, but we can tell you where they're going to get played and who they're going to play against. We will talk about that and much more throughout today's show. Let's bring in our producer and co-host now, Mr. James Mesh. James, happy Thursday, sir. How are you? What's up, Matt? I'm doing all right. How about you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Uh, th- this Pelicans thing is a little wonky. Interesting. Um, so w- w- we've talked about it for a couple of days now. The-, the Pelicans, there's been rumors that they are looking to-, to move up. They are looking to kind of change things in, in their franchise, which I agree, prob- they probably need. Well, this afternoon... Tweets get circulated that the Pelicans were meeting with Zion Williamson at the Saints facility. Which is a little odd. Now, the Saints and Pelicans share the same building. But the fact that it was labeled the Saints facility is strange. And then not minutes later, the news gets announced that the Saints have I mean or the Pelicans have parted ways with Assistant coach Teresa Witherspoon. Now, Witherspoon has been on the staff since 2020. She's developed a very close relationship with players like Zion Williamson. Uh, the players trusted her. But here's the thing. Willie Green was hired inheriting Stan Van Gundy's staff. Willie Green has not had the chance to hire his own coaches. And make the staff his own. He started that by bringing in James Borrego about a month ago now. And now he's putting another stamp on it by cutting ties with Teresa Witherspoon. Now, some people are looking into this as, well, crap, is Zion next? I'm not going to say that he's not next. But I wouldn't rule it out either. Because here's the thing. The Pelicans feel like with just a couple moves and the coaching staff that they have right now, that they can make a run. Whether you and I agree with it or not is really quite irrelevant. They think that they can make a run. So they're going to do what they think is necessary to facilitate that. Now, 
long-term, what makes more sense? Me personally, I think long-term, keeping Zion Williamson makes more sense. But the Pelicans don't seem to be worried about long-term right now. So, James, percentage here. By Monday morning, Zion Williamson is no longer a Pelican. What's your percentage? I give it 80. Whoa! I'm not saying it's a foregone conclusion, but with how everything is, and I feel like if you're going to get rid of him, I feel like you're more likely to get rid of Zion than you would be Brandon Ingram. I think it's a crapshoot. I think you're looking at 50-50 right now. I feel like, you know, they're they're obviously going to listen to offers, mm-hmm. but they're going to keep them if they can kind of thing. But if they feel like, okay, this is a pick we have to go get, and, you know, Zion Williamson is the only piece that Team B wants, then then fine. Um. You know, the Pelicans are going to do what whatever they think is best. I just, I feel like when you look at it from a Zion Williamson or, or, or let's say Scoot Henderson, because that's the player that they're interested in. And I'm not saying this as a, oh, you know, Scoot's not going to be good in the NBA. I don't think Scoot's going to be good in the NBA. I, I don't, I, I don't think that at all. I think he's going to be very, a very good player in the NBA. But my point is, you know what you have in Zion Williamson. And yes, he's battled health and he's battled injury issues his first four years in New Orleans. I get it. I, I truly do. But when he plays, you know what you have. He averages 26 points a game. He's super efficient. He's super efficient. He is a, a, a decoy when you need him to be one. He does what you expect out of him, right? You know what you have. You don't know what you're going to have in Scoot Henderson. Because you can look at his G League tape and his stats all you want. But there is a talent difference between the G League and the NBA. 100%. Now, am I saying the Scoot Henderson's game will not translate to the NBA? No. But do I think that it's going to take him a year or two? Yeah, probably. I mean, look at Dyson Daniels. When the Pelicans drafted Dyson Daniels in the top 10, it was, oh man, this guy's going to immediately step in and contribute. Did he? Oh, he, he, he played for the Ignite. You know, th- they're the closest thing to a pro team. He's going to step right in and be able to contribute. But he, but he really didn't. He showed flashes. But if you look at the season at a, as a whole, do you think he was a contributor? I'm going to say no. And I just worry, and obviously this is a risk you have to take, but I just worry that you're going to sell the number one overall pick and the the generational talent that you have already 
whether injury prone or, or not, and you're going to get busted if Scoot Henderson doesn't turn out to be the player that you need him to be. That's just that's just my concern. Because you're already, quote-unquote, behind as a franchise. And if you get this wrong, you set yourself even further behind. James, where, where, do, you, where do you stand on... I mean, I, I know you're pretty much for trading Zion, but... Yeah, I'm, I'm much more for trading Zion because even though he is, quote-unquote, a generational talent and a guy that can do so much for you, I feel like he's kind of limited on his game, especially on the offensive end, since you see him bully ball into the paint, and that's where you see him get 60% of his shots to go in because even if he misses, he just gets his own rebound and puts it back anyway. But he doesn't really have a mid-range game. He really doesn't have much of a three-point game. He's generally okay at passing, but it's not like it's anything special. He can rebound, of course, and he can play pretty good defense. But it's like, I don't know if you can necessarily run a whole offense around him. And even if you do, well, if he's not going to be there 70% of the season, well, then what's the point of making him the focal point of the offense if the focal point of the offense is never there? You can run the offense a lot more smoothly through Brandon Ingram. He's a more well-rounded player. That's my issue. And then Zion doesn't seem like type to be the actual leader. So if you're... That's true. If your leader is never on the court, always has something going on, whether it's injury-wise or apparently something more personal issues... Yeah. It's it's like there there's just so many red flags and there's only so many red flags that you can ignore before it just burns you. Now, I'm going to say this. If you give up Zion, mm-hmm. that is the only thing that you give up. You retain pick 14. I mean, you could you could throw in some uh some other bad contracts. I mean, sure. You could throw them in, throw them in throw in some other players like, "Hey, if you're going to take Zion, you got to take these guys." But if you're throwing in Zion, if Zion's the main piece, they don't get Zion and 14. Because then you're getting fleeced. They don't get both. Now, if you want CJ McCollum, you know, then I'll throw in the 14. But you don't get Zion and, and an additional first rounder. That's not how this is going to work. This just came across and you know, James, I'm I'm a huge golf guy. U.S. Open began began today, obviously at, at L.A. Country Club. Before Thursday, in major championship history, James, only one round score of 62 had been recorded ever, and it had never happened at the U.S. Open. We are halfway through the first round. There have already been two 62s recorded. Ricky Fowler and Xander Shoffley both shot a 62 for the first and second 62s in U.S. Open history. Fowler gets 10 birdies on the day, and Xander Shoffley goes bogey-free. They are both 8-under at the Par 70 course. Los Angeles Country Club, this is the first time that it is hosting a major, and they are currently... Five clear of the field. How about Xander Shoffley and the run that he has been on? A 62 in a major. That is absolutely 
incredible. LSU football, again, 2024 schedule, or, or 2024 opponents, I should say, were announced last night. LSU will host Ole Miss, Vanderbilt, Alabama, and Oklahoma will come to Tiger Stadium while they will go on the road to South Carolina, Texas A&M, Florida, and Arkansas. You notice how Auburn and Mississippi State weren't included? It'll be the first time since 1943 that LSU does not play Mississippi State. It'll be the first time since 1992 that they do not play the Auburn Tigers. James, is this new scheduling format and bringing Texas and Oklahoma in, is it going to be good for the SEC or bad for the SEC? Because it's been 80 years since the last time you didn't play Mississippi State. And now they're just off the schedule? It is pretty wild to think since you know that you've seen them forever, but when you actually see the date of you haven't played Mississippi State since the early 1940s, it really kind of shakes you to your core a little bit because you don't realize how much time has passed and like, wow, this is this is a big time change. Now, I think it'll help in a way since, you know, Texas and Oklahoma are definitely big time schools. They are big time programs. And the fact that you can get another big time name program and two in this case to be in the best conference in college athletics. I, I don't see how this is much of a, a minus. I see this as pluses. Yeah. I, I, and I, I don't disagree with that. I, I think that there there is a big plus to this. But again, like I mentioned, not playing Mississippi State just seems so odd. It's going to take some getting used to, for sure, because you're going to have to but include man. Oklahoma, you're going to have to include Texas in these, but you've seen them before, and even though it may take some adjusting for Oklahoma and Texas in the SEC, we've seen it plenty of times with the Longhorns. They always play SEC teams close. Texas and Texas A&M is going to be a conference game again. Oh, that's going to be so fun. Oh, that's going to be so fun. We've got a great show lined up for you today. Ryan Shumpert's going to join us at 4.30 to preview the Tennessee Volunteers as LSU plays them in Omaha on Saturday. And then Andrew Rogers will join us at the top of hour number two from Herdat Sports in Omaha to preview the World Series from the field as a whole. Once again, game hotline 337-706-0111. When we return, we'll talk more U.S. Open and We'll dive deep into the LSU football non-conference schedule right here on The Game. This is Crunch Time on The Game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles. Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. If you're looking for great deals, and look no further than AcadianaDeals.com. Plenty of two-for-one deals available right now, including a $30 voucher to La Hacienda for only 15 bucks. And starting tomorrow, you'll be able to get your hands on a $40 voucher to Misfits Dine and Drink for only $20. Once again, head to AcadianaDeals.com to take advantage of these deals and so many more. Got something to say to Miguez and Mesh? Hell yeah! It's easy. Just call the hotline by dialing 337-706-0111. Now, back to more Crunch Time with Miguez and Mesh here on The Game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. 
Before we get to golf and LSU, I've got to send out some congratulations. It has been 27 years, four months, and 17 days since the Dallas Cowboys lifted a Vince Lombardi trophy. Today makes 10,000 days without a Super Bowl for America's team. And here's to 10,000 more. For we dim boys. For we're going to get them next year. I can keep recycling the phrases. James, right on the money. Cheers to 10,000 more. Because the Cowboys are trash. Trash. Absolute garbage. And I cannot wait to watch them continuing to suck. I hate the Cowboys. Hate them so much. And I feel so bad for Dak Prescott because he's such a good guy and a great quarterback. And I wish he was playing anywhere else but Dallas. Ugh. Anyways, so James, we, we talked about LSU's SEC opponents. But when you add that those eight games into their already announced non-conference schedule, it is brutal. So in 2024, LSU is going to face Ole Miss, Oklahoma, Alabama, A&M, Florida, Arkansas, UCLA, and USC. Huh. I'm looking at their schedule right now. I'm going to say that there are two wins that are guaranteed. I can, I can uh, like, wholeheartedly say that they have two wins guaranteed. Vanderbilt and Nichols. Everything else is a crapshoot. I can't even say that they would beat South Alabama. Now, LSU is going to be great in 2024. I'm not saying that they won't be. Okay. But South Alabama's good, too. And you remember what happened when UL played, not UL, uh, LSU played ULM just a couple years ago. It was a two-touchdown game. Granted, that LSU team wasn't great, but the point still stands. Anything can happen. Remember when Troy went to Baton Rouge, got a million-dollar paycheck, and beat him? Anything can happen. So I'm not going to say that that's a definite win. But Nichols and Vandy? Yeah, that's... Those are two dubs. Those are two dubs. Uh, but man, how okay. how brutal! USC, UCLA, Ole Miss, Bama, Oklahoma, Florida, A and M, Arkansas, and then South Carolina in there as well. But that's a brutal year for for anybody. Garrett Nussmeyer, it's your first full year of starting. Here's a gauntlet. Have fun. But this is what you look for. This, this is what you look for. It's true. When, when you're in the best conference and you're playing the best teams, this is what you look for. Oh, but that you want to play. You want to play the best of the best to prove, like, hey, we beat everyone else. This is why we are number one. That's true. But still brutal, man. Golly, 
U.S. Open update again. We talked about Ricky Fowler and Xander Shoffley both shooting 62s. They're tied for first at 8-under. Bryson DeChambeau, Scotty Scheffler behind them at 3-under. Max Homa at 2-under. Phil Mickelson there as well. Gordon Sargent, the amateur from Vanderbilt. He's at 1-under. Victor Hovland and John Rahm at 1-under as well. Cam Smith, 1-under. Roy McIlroy, 1-under. Sergio Garcia is at even par on the afternoon. Dustin Johnson just getting underway. He's still even. Tony Finau and Patrick Cantlay just getting started as well. James, in an event like this with the U.S. Open being one of the four majors and this being the first time that it's being hosted at Los Angeles Country Club, how much do you think for, for a guy like Max Homa, who's played Los Angeles Country Club many times before, do you think that that gives him a leg up over the other guys? Or do you think that that could lead him to overthink things? I don't think it would necessarily mean you would overthink things. Because I can almost compare it to, you know how you always had a basketball goal as a kid? Correct. Well, I mean, you got used to a certain ball that you would use, and you, you got so used to your basketball court if you went to go play on enough you knew the little intricacies and kind of how to finesse your way to scoring more on your friends or whatever I feel like it's the same way with him if he's if he's gone to the Los Angeles Country Club enough he should know he probably has picked up on a few tricks here and there on how to finesse his way to have a better score that most others wouldn't know yeah that's true that's true because um... like I know for me I knew I knew like there was a little spot on my basketball goal on the backboard. Whereas like if you threw it, no matter how hard you threw it or how soft you threw it, it was gonna go in. Yeah, you get used to it, you get familiar with it. Um the, the, I honestly have Max Homa as one of my favorites for the weekend, uh, for that reason. Just because again, that, that experience, like James just mentioned, you know the secrets of the course, right? You're going to know how to how to orchestrate it a little better than most. And I think that that could create a big advantage for Max Homa on the weekend. Let's go to the game hotline now. Ralph, what's up? Hey, man. Uh, I know this is comparing, I'm not going to say apples to oranges, but apples to maybe another, maybe green apples. But, um, you know, you would have thought for, for years uh, Craig Perks was the – head pro or assistant pro at Le Triomphe when the, and again, at that time, I'm not sure which one of the developmental tours it was, Nike, it wasn't nationwide yet. But anyway, Craig Perks could, on a normal day at Le Triomphe, go out and shoot 64, 65 without breaking a sweat. And, for the, I think he probably competed in that at least five times before he went on the PGA Tour. I think he made the cut once, and it was a very low finish even making the cut. So, you know, it's like you know the course. It's very familiar to you, but there also is a little bit of built-in pressure. For sure. I think kind of, you know, internally with that, you know, because it's like, well, I should play well here because I know this course well. Uh, and, of course, you know, you have the hometown fans kind of rooting for you now. Worked out great for Nick Taylor last week in Canada. 
but uh, sometimes it can have a little reverse effect too, you know. So it's, God, that's seventy. It's an interesting. That seventy-two foot putt was unreal, huh? It was amazing. I mean, and you know, the the, the most amazing part was I don't know who that dude was that, that tackled Adam Hadwin, but I, he should get a CFL contract at the very least, right. it's not NFL, because that was a perfect form tackle. I mean, you could use that in NFL highlight film, man. Um, but it was uh, it was all good, you know. It was it was a great. Uh, but I I, I got to be honest, you know, I watched all, all the coverage this morning up until uh, a few few uh, minutes ago. And, um, you know, I, I mean, you kind of look at all these things, that 290-yard par three, and you realize, you know, yeah, there's a lot of – but it's – to me, it's not a typical USGA no. setup. Now, it may get harder on the weekend. Uh, it may dry out a little bit. It was a little moist today. Um, but, um, I mean, look, man, 262, that's kind of kind of unreal. You Ab- know? Absolutely um, wild. Uh, yeah, and I wasn't expecting that, especially, you know, I could see it from Shoffley because he was one of the favorites going in. Ricky Fowler has been playing better, but still to see him, you know, put it together like that was, was pretty impressive. So, yeah, for sure. But i tell you what, Matt, I, I continue to be impressed by these young kids. The next 10 years on the PGA Tour is going to be a lot of fun um, with the, some of these college kids that, that are, you know, Still amateurs now, but we'll be turning pro shortly. No question. Um, because you have the kid that um, I forget his name now that was competing at the ma- um, in in contention at the Masters for Same three minute. rounds. Um, yeah, and then you got uh, you know Sargent shooting well today, so it it's going to be a lot of fun. So I enjoyed your little uh, your little preview of of it on on you know I I would maybe do some editing on the on the golf part of it you know before you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, do some of you, you know, get some better highlights in there. You know? <laughs> oh yeah, no, absolutely, Ralph. Appreciate the call, man. All right, man. Take care. All right. So uh, again, we'll we'll keep you updated with the U.S. Open as we get through the weekend. We'll go ahead and take a time out here, four thirty-one. When we return, Ryan Shumpert of Rocky Top Insider, he'll join us to preview the matchup between LSU and Tennessee right here on the game. This is Crunch Time, live from the Evco Development Studios in Upper Lafayette on the game. 1037 Lafayette, 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Welcome back to Crunch Time inside the Evco Development Studios here in Upper Lafayette. It's 435 on your Thursday. Matt Miguez, James Mesh. The game hotline is 337-706-0111. The LSU Tigers in Omaha getting set for their first game, closing in on 48 hours from now as they will play the Tennessee Volunteers on Saturday night. Ryan Shumpert of Rocky Top Insider joins us here on Crunch Time. Ryan, thanks for taking the time, man. How are you? I'm doing well. It's hectic as NCAA baseball postseason is. Got back from Hattiesburg about, I don't know, 48 hours ago, and we'll be off to off to Omaha in about 24 as well, but that's uh, that's the fun of it all, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, that, that's why you get into this business. Exactly, exactly. So uh, it's been a fun ride it, and certainly a kind of a crazy Tennessee baseball season. They're obviously in a, a much more much different spot than they were, I think, the last time I talked to you uh, when they headed down to Baton Rouge in March, um, and certainly for the better for Tennessee's sake of things. Yeah, you know, that'll be that'll be question number one for you. You know, since they last played each other in March, 
What has changed about this Tennessee team, and where do you think they have grown? Well, I think uh, the most obvious thing that's changed, or the one glaring thing you would point to, is the change they made to their weekend rotation. They came into the year with the exact same weekend rotation that they had for the majority of 2022, and that was that Chase Dolander was on Friday night, which actually that part was switched. But the same three guys, Chase Dolander Friday night, Chase Burns Saturday, and then Drew Beam on Sunday. Well, a couple weeks after that LSU series, they make a switch, and they take Chase Burns out of the weekend rotation. He'd really been struggling. Uh, they insert Andrew Lindsay, a Charlotte transfer, who really took all the 2022 baseball season off for some mental health stuff. And Lindsay became the Friday night guy, and they moved Dolander to Saturday. And uh, that's kind of been for the better for everybody. Andrew Lindsay's been really good on Friday night and Chase Burns has kind of refound himself out of the bullpen. So that's probably the biggest difference. Tony Vitello will uh, talk to the media in Omaha and then a little bit over Zoom here in about an hour. So we'll figure out, hopefully figure out what Tennessee's pitching plan is for Saturday night. But uh, I would assume it would be Lindsay. And then kind of looking at things on the greater scale for Tennessee, I look back at that Tennessee-LSU series, and I don't think Tennessee played all that awful, especially compared to how they played in a lot of series early in SEC play and early in the year as a whole. Um, but I didn't, I didn't come away from that series thinking Tennessee didn't belong on the same field as LSU. Now, they made a couple crucial, crucial defensive mistakes, including in game one that kind of buried them, um, and a couple base running mistakes too. So that's been different. They've been a little more polished in that area in the postseason. Um, but as a whole, I don't think when you look at Tennessee's offense, when you look at their lineup, it's going to be a ton, ton different. Um, from what you saw down in Baton Rouge in March. You know, they finished off the regular season pretty strong. They swept Mississippi State. They've dropped two out of three to Georgia, and then they came back and took two out of three from Kentucky and then took two out of three from South Carolina before they went into the SEC tournament. You know, just kind of talk about their run here in this postseason, you know, going to the Clemson Regional and winning that regional before taking two out of three from Southern Miss to put them in this position. Well, I think really where the season changed for Tennessee was they went down, uh, I guess, about two weeks after the LSU series. They got swept at Arkansas. They came back and lost to Tennessee Tech in the midweek. And there were some, you know, real heart to heart conversations. Strength coach, uh, strength and conditioning coach Quentin Epperhart really got into the team during that week. And they followed that up. They played Vanderbilt the next weekend, crucial series. They were 5 and 10 in SEC play at that point. They came from down two in the ninth inning, including a game-tying home run uh, with two outs in the bottom of the ninth. To tie that game, they won an extra innings. They ended up sweeping Vanderbilt. I think that's kind of when the season turned around. And you kind of saw something really similar to that in the postseason. I mean, they get a tough draw having to go to the Clemson Regional. I think Clemson entered that week having won 16 straight games, and it was 17 straight games after both teams won their game one. And they faced Caden Grice, Clemson's ace, a left-hander who was uh, he was a, it was a pleasure to watch that night. He was really, really good. And Tennessee was down by two in the ninth inning. Uh, nobody on base. They got back-to-back singles, including the second one, ran Caden Grice from the game. And then uh, Zane Denton probably had to swing it a year for Tennessee. He hits a three-run home run, gives them the lead. They end up, Clemson ties it up in the bottom of the ninth. Tennessee ends up winning the game in 14 innings. Uh, and then kind of from there, Clemson was pretty deflated and lost in the turnaround to Charlotte. And then last weekend, it, it was kind of, uh, similar to what Tennessee did last year in the, in the Super Regional round where they dropped game one. Uh, rain delays were prevalent, but I, I won't bore you with all that details down in Hattiesburg last weekend. Uh, they take game two, and really they fall behind 4-0 uh, 
in the third inning of Game 2. Then they responded with a sixth spot in the fourth inning, and from that point on, they really cruised the rest of the weekend. They didn't give up a single run in the final, trying to do the quick math of it, final 15 innings of the Hattiesburg Super Regional. Uh, they win that game 8-4 to in Game 2, and then 5-0 in Game 3 to, to return to Omaha for the second time in the last three seasons. You know, just kind of looking at, at Tennessee, obviously the, the pitching staff stands out with Chase Dolander and, and Burns and Lindsey, like you mentioned. But I'm looking at some numbers here of the home run production of each team in Omaha, and it's kind of it's kind of surprising. LSU's in the lead at 133, and then Florida and Wake Forest each have 129. But Tennessee's right behind at 125. Both teams being able to hit the long ball, obviously headed to a park that's a little bit bigger than most, uh, So and the wind always blows in. So you might not see as many long balls over the next week, week and a half. But how do you think the two offenses will fare in, in Omaha this weekend? To me, it's a much bigger concern for Tennessee. I think they've been more home run dependent. Like I look at LSU. LSU hits a lot of home runs because their offense is really, really good, and they have a lot of dudes in it. Tennessee hits a lot of home runs, and there's certainly some of that stuff's the case too, but they hit home runs because that's the way they need to score. Uh, they don't play much small ball. They don't have a ton of really good contact hitters in that lineup. Uh, Jared Dickey is probably the main example. He's been really good contact-wise. Christian Scott and Hunter Inslee and stretches have, uh, but haven't necessarily been uh, hitting at their highest clip here going into this, going into the College World Series. So, uh, especially the last two weekends, it's been pretty dependent uh, on the home run for Tennessee. And some of those numbers are inflated, as I'm sure every LSU fan knows from two years ago. Lindsey Nelson Stadium is a very hitter-friendly park, um, but I do see this as be, or see that as being a concern for Tennessee. And obviously, I don't follow Clemson. Uh, on a day-to-day basis like I do Tennessee's program. But I just uh, – LSU has a lot of home runs, but I don't see it being – I think I said Clemson a minute ago. LSU is what I meant. I don't see it being as big as a problem for an offense. To me, that seems much more well-rounded. Chatting with Ryan Shumpert of Rocky Top Insider. I know you mentioned Andrew Lindsay probably getting the start against LSU on Saturday. But, man, what would what would a Dolander-Skeens matchup look like in Omaha? I know ESPN wants it. I can tell you that much. Uh, that's the that's made for TV dream right there. Saturday night in Omaha, Chase Dolander versus Paul Skeens, two projected top ten picks. And uh, I mean, we obviously got it earlier in the season, and, and I really lived up to it. Honestly, uh, you know, Chase Dolander wasn't as good as Skeens that day. hasn't been as good as Skeens all season, granted. Uh, but from a run standpoint, it really matched him. And I think it's easy to forget that Tennessee that game was tied in the bottom of the eighth inning, and mm-hmm. Tennessee booted the ball around the, the whole greater Baton Rouge area in the eighth inning and let the game get away from them. Uh, but it would be super, super exciting. I mean, Chase Dolander versus Caden Grice two weeks ago was a ton of fun. And uh, personally, you know, if it was me, uh, I would pitch Chase Dolander uh, against LSU because Tennessee's going to need a dominant pitching outing to kind of go toe-to-toe with Paul Skeens, in my opinion. And Andrew Lindsay's capable of doing that. He's done that this year. Uh, but Dolander's ceiling just, is just higher. And I think on the flip side, if Tennessee was to lose game one, I think Andrew Lindsay's floor is higher than Dolander's, so I think he would be kind of better suited for game two. But uh, I'm a sports writer. Tony Vitale gets paid $1.5 million to make those decisions. He's a lot smarter than I am. And uh, if I'm projecting, I would guess he goes with Lindsay because that really has been a winning formula for him back after the season. 
You know, I'm looking at the offensive statistics for Tennessee, and obviously Jared Dickey and Griffin Merritt jump out with with their 325 and 315 batting averages, respectfully. Both have double-digit home runs, you know, 50 RBIs, things of that nature. But then when you you look down the list a little bit, there's Zane Denton down there with a 274 average, but he has 16 homers and 58 runs batted in. Uh, t- talk about how Denton could be not not necessarily a sneaky guy because anybody that follows college baseball has heard his name before, but people might look at the 274 average and go, well, he might not hurt you as much as somebody else would. You're right, and I think both Zane Denton and Christian Moore, and Moore's batting average is a little bit higher, but they're both in the same vein in that they have power and they're very streaky hitters, and they've both been on stretches this year where they've been on just absolute tears. And Christian Moore... Uh, hit as many home runs as outs he recorded in the Clemson Regional. It was just unbelievable. And Zane Denton's had, you know, arguably uh, the two two biggest swings of the, of the season for Tennessee. He hit the home run at Clemson, I already mentioned. He had a three-run homer uh, Monday night in Game 3 to Super Regional that gave Tennessee some breathing room. And while his it's kind of been indicative of his season, his postseason has, he hasn't been fantastic getting on base. He's got five hits in the NCAA tournament. Four of them are home runs. And he's driven in double-digit runs. So, He's been really since – I'd have to go back and check the numbers on this, but I think the entire year, uh, start to finish, he's been Tennessee's RBI leader. Uh, I know he was coming out of the first weekend, and he's just been a pretty constantly good bat in big moments. And then he's had it even in weekends where he really hasn't been at his best. And like I said, he's been a little streaky. And even in those weekends when he hasn't been at his best, he's found a way to provide some big swings and really help. It's a Tennessee offense that isn't great, uh, but it's found just enough timely hits to keep on winning in the postseason. A name that has been getting thrown around a lot when when discussing Tennessee is Maui Ahuna at shortstop, a 302 average, eight homers, 41 RBIs. Talk to me about Ahuna and you know what he does well and how he's able to to kind of be a leader for this Tennessee offense. I think he's the most underrated guy on it, and at least from the Tennessee side of things, maybe not more nationally because he was a big name in the transfer portal. I know LSU pursued him, Arkansas pursued him, but. He's just not a typical leadoff man. He hits in the leadoff spot for Tennessee, and he leads the team in strikeouts. You don't see that much. And not only that, he's kind of got – I wouldn't compare his game overall to Javi Baez, but he's got that ability to just strike out once or twice a weekend in a way where you go, that's one of the worst bats I've ever watched. But when you look at the production as a whole, it's been really good. He leads the team in doubles. He's starting to walk more and more as the season goes on. I thought he had really good at bat last weekend in Hattiesburg, even a handful that did end in strikeouts. So he's kind of growing in that leadoff spot. It hasn't been super natural for him, uh, but he's been a guy that can kind of spark things at any time with one swing of a bat. Not a ton of home run power. Uh, I don't think as much as Tennessee expected. I think he's got eight in the season now, but the doubles have been really, really good. And once he gets on base, he's a good base runner. Uh, not a huge stolen base threat, but a pretty fast guy. And then defensively, he was dealing with some back injuries early in the year and kind of represented a lot of those defensive struggles I talked about earlier. But, man, the last two months he's been rock solid, and that's kind of what Tennessee was most excited about when they got him. This is defense, and he's made some really special plays, and it's just been really steady down the stretch of the season. Ryan Shumpert of Rocky Top Insider joining us here on crunch time ryan one more question before i let you run if you had to give me one x factor for tennessee to have success in omaha who is it that's a great question Uh, i think i'll go i'll go with christian moore just because 
he's the guy that when he's been on, he has been so, so good, and he's completely changed Tennessee's offense. There's really three series, there are three weekends, I guess, with one of them being the Clemson Regional, where I can think about it. You just couldn't get the guy out, and he hit for power doing it. So Tennessee's pitching is really, really good. It's its strength. Its depth, I think, is particularly its strength, which plays well in kind of the regional format that you have for the first half of the College World Series. And when you talk about a bigger park, I think that plays to Tennessee's pitching strength. They want to go right at you. Uh, they don't want to walk guys, and they're good with giving up some hard contact. So I feel good about that. I think the question for Tennessee all year, all postseason especially, has just been can they find enough offense? Can they muster enough offense to win games? And Christian Moore's a guy that when he's on, it does a lot to change Tennessee's offense. Ryan Shumpert of Rocky Top Insider. Ryan, appreciate your time. Enjoy Omaha, my friend. And uh, we'll talk to you again when football season rolls around. Yeah, that sounds great. Appreciate you having me on. And there he goes, Ryan Shumpert of Rocky Top Insider. We'll take a timeout. Wrap up hour number one right after this. This is Crunch Time on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles. Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. If you want to take your lady out for a nice dinner, but you're running a little low on cash, not to worry. The Game Clubhouse at 1037thegame.com or 1041thegame.com can help you with your date night blues. As a member of our rewards club, you'll have the opportunity to score excellent prizes like a $150 gift certificate to Mr. Lester's Steakhouse and a $25 gift certificate to Mabel's Kitchen, both located at Cyrus Bayou Casino Resort. But you can only score these great prizes by becoming a member of the Game Clubhouse at 1037thegame.com or 1041thegame.com. It's free and it's simple, so go sign up today. You're listening to The Game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles. Slings it far side. Stingley steps inside the receiver and picks it off. Southwest Louisiana's sports station. A shot to left field. Going back on it's Gordon. He'll look up at the goal. LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. Welcome back to Crunch Time. Let's wrap it up. Our number one here from the FCO Development Studios in Upper Lafayette. FCO Development is a civil construction company that specializes in multifamily construction. Don't forget to vote on the poll question of the day on both Facebook and Twitter. Which national seed outside of LSU is your favorite in Omaha this year? Is it the Florida Gators, Virginia, Stanford? Or Wake Forest. Really, Wake Forest is leading the way at 50% of the votes. The next highest is the Florida Gators at 31.5%. 7% goes towards Stanford. And then the final 11% goes towards Virginia. Now, we were talking about before the show, Matt. You know how they made a, they had made a special design for each one of the final eight in Omaha. Made mm-hmm. little shirt designs. And some of them were kind of creative. The others were kind of corny. And then there were a couple of that just stood out like, Wow, we really ran out of the creative juices here. So, I, I'm so glad you brought that up because I was going to bring it up in hour number two. But if you're going to bring it up now, then let, let's just go ahead and talk about it. Yeah, we, we can save a couple of topics for the second hour. So, like James mentioned, they made shirts for each team in the World Series. And all of them, all of them but two, were, uh, were, were pretty creative. It was, obviously, LSU's said, Go Maha. TCU's said Oma Frogs. Virginia's said Oma Hoos because they're the Cavaliers or people call them the Hoos. Um, Wake Forest was the Oma Deeks. Like, Deacons. Like some, some of them were, were very, very clever. Um, 
And then but you then, get to sp- two specific ones. But then Tennessee, first of all, had a completely different shirt design than everybody else. And it just said, Oma Vols. Like, uh, uh, okay. I mean, I don't know what else you really could have done with Tennessee. I was going to say, that's but that's, fine. A, that's about as creative as you can get with that. And then you get to Stanford. And, and poor Stanford, they got the same dry fit shirt that Tennessee got, which is different than the other six. And they, I guess they couldn't figure out any way to tie in Oma with anything Stanford related. So it just says Stanford baseball. The, the, it just says Stanford baseball. Like you could have said Oma cards or, or something. Or Oma Hardinals. It's like, it like just, none of them really work. You, you. You could have at least given it a shot. But you like, could have tried. It's it's as standard as it gets because you see the designs with the logo, with it kind of being slanted with either Omaha or something oh, of and, that sort. And but it just it shows the Cardinal logo, Stanford, baseball. It's like, oh, and that's and it. <laughs> Oral Roberts, Oralaha. That that's mm, you, that's a swing and a miss. You tried. You made an effort, outside, and you failed. Outside of Gomaha, I really like Oma Chomp. Yeah, the, the Oma Chomp's pretty With good. With Florida, I like that one a lot. Oma Chomp's pretty good, but uh, you'll you'll never touch Gomaha. That that just it's so perfect. It it just doesn't get any better than that. Uh, but Stanford baseball, poor guys. Anyways, hour number one in the books. Hour number two, we're going to kick it off with Andrew Rogers of Herd at Sports, based out of Omaha, talking about the College World Series. And then we're going to get into just a a ton of fun topics here on the game. Southwest Louisiana Sports Station in your home for the LSU Tigers, the World Series champion Houston Astros. We're back right after this top of the hour sports update. You're clocked out. We're locked in. You're listening to Crunch Time with Miguez and Mesh here on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Hour number two of two here on Crunch Time. This is the game 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles. Broadcasting live from the FCO Development Studios here in Upper Lafayette. FCO Development is a civil construction company that specializes in new multifamily construction. The game hotline is 337-706-0111. In hour number one, we touched on the U.S. Open LSU's football schedule for 2024, and we previewed the Tennessee Volunteers as they prepare to battle LSU in the first round of the College World Series Saturday night in Omaha. Now here in hour number two, we're going to switch gears, talk a little bit about the New Orleans Saints. We'll look at some top stories in sports, but right now let's talk about the College World Series from a wider perspective with Andrew Rogers of Herdat Sports. Andrew, good afternoon, sir. How are you? Hey, boys, I'm good. You brought me into industry, baby. I'm feeling pumped up for this. Now, you know, let's start with how these teams got to where they are in in Omaha. You know, you've got Florida, LSU, Wake Forest. You know, those teams you kind of expected to be in there, Virginia and Stanford Stanford as well. But then you have TCU and Tennessee, who are good baseball programs. There's no doubt about that. But you probably didn't expect them to make it this far this year. And then there's Oral Roberts. Just kind of talk about this field and how it's made up. 
Yeah, you know, seven of the eight teams actually were preseason top 20, so I don't want anybody to forget about that. Uh, the only team that's not in that mix is Oral Roberts, which what a tremendous story they are. And we know them very well up here in Omaha because they play in the Summit League, and UNO obviously uh, one of the three schools that we cover religiously up here. But Oral Roberts, guys, this team can hit. They can absolutely hit. They deserve to be here. You look at what they did in the uh, in the Super Regional. Let's just like take a moment and admire the fact mm-hmm. that they were up eight nothing in Game One, blew the lead, ended up losing that game, but didn't surrender to the pressure, and ended up winning the next two. Like that is so hard to do with any team, but especially at the status Oral Roberts ranks among these other teams. And then you mentioned TCU. They could be, they really could be named the hottest team in baseball right now. I mean, they used offense to win the regionals. They couldn't be touched on the mound in the supers. Uh, This is a team that just can win in a variety of different ways. And then Tennessee, the the last one that you were kind of alluding to, because we saw what happened last year, right? This was the team that, uh, if you could pick a team halfway through the year, it was Tennessee. If you could pick a team once you got to the regionals, it was Tennessee. And then all of a sudden, they just fell flat on their face. But they still have every bit of talent back on this roster. I mean, you see what you're getting out of Dolander. You see what you're getting out of Drew Beam. Drew Beam would be a number one starter on most teams, and he's this team's number three. I think Tennessee's the team that really scares people. Uh, now, the good news is it, I don't see him beating Tennessee, so or uh, Louise, LSU, excuse me, for you guys back there in Louisiana. Uh, but if they fall to the loser's bracket, they have enough to get back out. Now, you, you look at this field, and there's tons of SEC representation, obviously, with, with the three teams from the Southeastern Conference. You've also got two teams from the ACC, and then you have a Pac-12, a Big 12, and then you mentioned the Summit League. Just kind of, you know, we'll start with bracket one, Florida, Virginia, TCU, Oral Roberts. Plenty of offense in in this bracket, but there's also some really good pitching uh, in in that group of four. Just kind of walk me through those matchups. Yeah, we could start with TCU, Oral Roberts. That's the first game on the docket. Uh, Again, I had mentioned that Oral Roberts can can absolutely hit, but they have some arms too. So I don't want that to go unnoticed. As for TCU, what I talked about with them and the Supers, uh, it was just unbelievable how much in control they were on the mound. It, there was no, and I there were two teams I really watched in the Supers. Uh, it, they just happened to be on TV whenever I got home from work. But it was TCU and it was Virginia every single time. And that TCU team, you would just watch them and think, yeah, they're not, they're not losing this game. And then I'd switch over to Virginia, and you're looking at, as you said, an ACC team that no one really knew enough about, but this is a team that gives you championship vibes. Their primary three starters combined for a record of 29-5. and five. Add to that that they have probably the most consistent bullpen heading to Omaha – the Cavaliers can dominate games on the bump, but they also hit. I mean, you know Kyle Teal's going to be a top-ten pick mm-hmm. in the draft. Uh, you know uh, Geloff is one of the best players to come through that program. So 
you see what they do on the bump. You see what they do at the plate. They're the number one team in college baseball in terms of batting average. That's a team that kind of scares me. We were picking teams on our show this morning, and I, I brought up Virginia as like the team that you would cheer for. Not the team that I was thinking like, oh, they're going to win, but that's a team that like, man, I could really cheer for you. Uh, they're led by Coach Brian O'Connor, um, and he is just somebody that you can just I, – I'd run through a brick wall for that guy, and I don't even play for him. So uh, I'd be worried. I would be worried if I'm on that side of the bracket and I have to see Virginia, especially for Florida. But, look, you, you see Wyatt Langford. He'll be a top three pick. He'd probably go number one if Skeens and Cruz weren't in this draft. And then you have the best two-way player in this entire tournament and Jack Caglianone. Seven and three as a pitcher, 3.780 ERA, holds the program record for home runs, guys, hit in a single season. We're talking about Shohei Otani 2.0. I wouldn't go that far. But the weird thing with them is they just don't blow the doors off their opponent. Right. Every game's a little bit closer. So that's why they kind of get forgotten about, right? They fly under the radar. There's going to be tons of offensive explosion in that bracket. And then you have bracket two that's going to have tons of great pitching. Wake Forest, arguably, you know, in terms of ERA, they have the best pitching staff in the country. LSU with Paul Skeens, like you mentioned. Tennessee has Chase Dolander. And then Stanford's typically got good arms over there playing West Coast baseball. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, LSU and Tennessee Saturday night, Wake Forest and Stanford as well. Uh, talk about those two matchups and who gets out of both of those. Yeah, pitching-wise, they're, they're fantastic. Offensively, too. I mean, that may be the better offensive bracket than the other one. Uh, Wake Forest, we haven't seen a, an overall one-seed win since 1999. And frankly, we just don't see a team like this Wake team come around that often. It, they're the team that I would probably say, if, if, I, if you ask me who I'm putting my money down on, I mean, I'd take the chalk because I just don't know how many teams can compete with them. Do you guys realize that, and I don't remember the exact number, but I looked this up about a week ago. They outscored their opponents in the regionals and supers like 75 to 16. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's just insane. Who's watching those games? Well, they hit nine right. bombs in that final game to advance. And Mike Rooney said this earlier uh, on his podcast, on the D1 Baseball podcast, that this team is 52 and 10, but guys, if they don't hit a home run, they're 6 and 6. Like, that's kind of funny to think about that. Not the fact that, hey, they lose games when they don't hit a home run, but they hit home runs in so many games that it only takes a sample size of 12 when they don't hit a home run. Uh, And then you looked at LSU. You mentioned Skeens. Skeens, little Steven Strasburg-like, right? Gives you that good vibe. One of two of the best players in college baseball. We haven't seen a Blue Blood win since Arizona in 2012. Uh, funny story. So I went down to FanFest this year, or, or today, and I, I always buy a T-shirt when I'm down there before the, before the College World Series even starts. And for the last two years, the T-shirt I bought, the team won the College World Series. So now I kind of like put it upon myself to pick the College World Series champion for everybody out there. But it's all based on whose T-shirt design I like most. And LSU's T-shirt is the one I like the most. Yeah, it is. Gomaha. Yeah, it is. Go- so, Gomaha has uh, kind of become trademarked around here. Bag in Louisiana, I'm sure they love. I'm sure they love to hear that. Now they took a huge hit, pitching wise this season. Like you know, you lost Garrett Edwards, Chase Shores, 
Grant Taylor. So they, they kind of just have to, you know, stay within themselves. Like you have a really good bullpen over there in Tiger country, but ah, man, you got some role players on the mountain now. It's, it's not your, it's not your usual suspects. So no. not that I'm worried about what they're going to do in game one against Tennessee. I think LSU wins that game. But if you don't, then I'm really struggling. Like I have a bad pit in my stomach about the depth of that, of that starting rotation. And then look, Tennessee, I kind of already touched on their three pitchers. They have a really good bullpen too. And, um, Gosh, who's the last one? Is it Stanford? Stanford's the last one in that mm-hmm. bracket? Yeah. Yeah, it's Stanford. Um, the Cardinals, they're weird because last year we talked about their offense and only their offense. And now, as you said, we are talking about the pitching a little bit more. Now, is that the Quinn Matthews story? Probably. I'm still not sure why he pitches 156 uh, in a game. Now, he averages probably 110 to 120. But that's still no excuse to have a guy go out and throw 156 pitches. That just seems reckless to me. Uh, they just don't give me the best vibes. Plus, they didn't even have a fun T-shirt when I went down there today. They were the only team. It just that didn't said have Stanford like a, a baseball fun slogan. So st- I'm out on Stanford. They can't even take Jello shots. They had 231 on the board last year. Oh, Andrew Rogers of Heard at Sports joining us here on Crunch Time. We're talking about the offense and how good the offense will be from these eight teams now Charles Schwab Park is a little longer than most college baseball Mm -hmm. parks and the way it's designed the wind blows in more times than not talk about who that may create an advantage for over the next 10 days oh well it will create a disadvantage for Wake Forest that's for sure a team that heavily relies on the long ball Um, but that's not to say that you know they can't hit for contact Um, as for who it creates the most advantage for? Oh man, hmm. this this one this one could absolutely stump me. Who's not hitting the ball over the fence? It seems like in college baseball nowadays, everybody is just yeah. smacking the ball over the fence. But if I'm looking for a team that hits for more contact, maybe Florida because they don't put up as many runs each game that. Virginia, maybe I feel more comfortable with Virginia. Let's go with them. Just because they have the top batting average in, in the entire country, and you know that this team can get on base and they can win using their legs. I'll, I'll take Virginia here, but I'm not sold. Like You could convince me otherwise. Now, you brought up your shirt theory and how the shirt you've picked the last two years <laughs> goes on to win the national championship. You liked LSU's shirt the best this year. Is that your pick to win it all? That would be my pick to win it all. I, and if Stanford's disqualified because they don't have a shirt, you know, good riddance. If I had to pick a team that shirt I didn't like based on what the design looked like, it would probably be Oral Roberts. Like I, their their name on the shirt is Oral Lahaw, and I'm like, guys, what? Yeah, that, what that's that's doing? not great. That's not great. Oral Lahaw, like. I, by all means, like wherever your brain takes a, a T-shirt, so be it. But ooh, we could have found a better, a better one. I mean, Wake Forest had a horrible T-shirt. They're the Oma Deeks. That doesn't even make sense. So, like, at least do something that doesn't make sense. The Oral Haw is kind of cringeworthy when you look at it. You, everything needs to start with like that O, 
right away. Right. Got to start with CO. You don't just change it to oral law. Yeah. Ah, no. Not, not for me. Not great at all. Andrew Rogers of Heard at Sports joining us here on Crunch Time. Andrew, appreciate your time. Enjoy Omaha this weekend and all next week. And uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Oh, I'll be a busy man. Side note, uh, I'm looking at the Jello Shot Challenge board right now, and Stanford has three to go along with my theory. Oof. Not, not, not a good start to the cards. <laughs> appreciate you, boys. And there he goes, Andrew Rogers of Herdat Sports 516. We'll take a timeout now, and when we return, we'll look at some top stories in sports. Plus, did Rob Manford become empathetic? We'll do that next. This is Crunch Time on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles. Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. We here at the game, Southwest Louisiana Sports Station, know you love our shenanigans both on and off the air. So head to our YouTube channel at the Game Louisiana and turn on the bell so you can get notifications when we post our new content and post game recaps. At the Game Louisiana on YouTube. Let your voice be heard. Hello. Give us a call on the hotline at 337-706-0111 and speak your mind. Yellow. This is the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles. Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Welcome back. 520 Matt Miguez, James Mesh. The game hotline is 337-706-0111. The Oakland Athletics stadium deal has made a big jump today. The Nevada legislature gave final approval to public funding for the proposed $1.5 billion stadium with a retractable roof. Uh, $380 million of it will come from taxpayer money, including the creation of a special tax district around the stadium to generate money to pay off the bonds and interests going towards the funding. So when that was announced, Rob Manfred, the commissioner of the MLB, released the following quote. I feel sorry for the fans in Oakland. I do not like this outcome. I understand why they feel the way they do. I think the real question is, what was Oakland prepared to do? There was no offer from Oakland. They never got to the point where they had a plan to build a stadium at any site. It's not just John Fisher. The community has to provide support. And at some point you come to the realization that it's just not going to happen. Okay, so let me make sure that I understand the quote correctly. He opens talking about how he feels sorry for Oakland. And then he finishes it bashing the fan base, saying that they didn't do enough to keep their team in Oakland. Am I am I following correctly, Mr. James Mesh? Indeed you are. Okay. I, I just wanna I just wanna be sure. You're not off the rails just yet. You had a hand in orchestrating this. You are the commissioner of the league. Your hand is in every decision made regarding any team. So if you felt so sorry for Oakland, why didn't you do something? You see it happen all the time where owners step in and say, hey, man, Look, or, or or the league steps in and looks at the owner and says, hey, man, 
You're not doing enough. Sell the team. Give it to somebody that's going to invest the money and do what it takes for them to have success. Because that's been Oakland's issue. The money is not there. And yes, a big part of that is fan support. Sure. I don't disagree with that. But you can't say that you feel sorry for the fans of a city and then rip their team out from under them. That's not how this works. Well, at a certain point, if nothing's going to get done... Right. Business is business. Business has to be made. Right. At, At the end of the day, I get it. So I think both things can be true that, yes, he made business, and you feel like, well, that's a heartless move if you feel so bad about it, but you can still feel bad about it and still get it done. Because it's like, look, if nothing's going to happen in Oakland, but you have a big opportunity in a place like Vegas, you'd hate to move them, but if it needs to be done, it needs to be done. Manfred also said that robot umpires would not be likely in 2024. God, I would hope not. Color me shocked. Game times have gone down, and average attendance across the league is up. Why would you change anything? You think you think more people are going to show up because you got robots behind the plate? No, if anything, attendance would probably go down. I guarantee you there is a 1% of baseball fans everywhere that go to games just to heckle the umpire. You can't heckle a robot. So your attendance would drop if you move to robot umpires. And also that takes the human element out of it. And that's just, no, don't do that. And here's the thing, that whenever you have a controversial call or a non-call, like we've seen plenty of times in college baseball, it generates discussion. And if you're not having discussion being generated for your sport or your league, well, then people aren't going to talk about you. Absolutely. That's why it's so intriguing when it comes to so many missed calls or crazy decisions made by refs in basketball and football. It creates great conversation, even though we would hate to always have to do it because you always feel like your team gets screwed out of it at the end because there's a late-minute call that changes the outcome of a game you feel like but without the controversy there wouldn't be much to talk about now another thing that i find interesting in in baseball is vegas native bryce harper who's currently playing for the philadelphia phillies is blasting the mlb and the oakland athletics for their relocation plans. He says that Oakland has too much history with the A's and that when you hear the team named the Athletics, you don't think of Las Vegas, you think of Oakland. Well, of course you do, because that's the only place that they've ever been. Duh. But I I do get his point because, like, like I mentioned the MLB could have gone a different way about this rather than just moving the team. But, of course, that's also on the ownership of the Oakland A's because it was their idea to move the team. But Bryce's point is, if you wanted baseball in Vegas so badly, why not put an expansion team in Vegas? 
Because here's the thing. If you put an expansion team in Vegas... You're now up to 31. You have to put an expansion team somewhere else. Then you'd have to get to 32, and then you have to mix-match the whole... All the divisions. Either you do what the NFL does with having eight divisions of four teams in each one, or you kind of do the hockey thing where you just have four, and then you just have eight teams in each of the four divisions and just make correct four super big divisions. Now, Nashville is a place that makes a lot of sense for an expansion team. Minor League Baseball has thrived in Nashville. That is a, a very, you know robust area obviously has spiked in population recently um so i feel like nashville could make a lot of sense salt lake is another one that makes sense i mean you look at the you look at the jazz you look at real salt lake that's a that's a sports town it just is um another one that's interesting and this isn't a expansion team i'm saying more of a relocation Take the Tampa Bay Rays and put them in Orlando. And let me tell you why. You build a new facility next to Disney. Disney invests. ESPN can probably, you know, finagle some kind of exclusive, well, not exclusive TV rights, but, you know, some kind of TV deal with with a network. And you just rake in the money and the Tampa Bay fans can still go because Orlando is only what 30 45 minutes outside of Tampa so that could work you get a brand new stadium Disney would invest into it everybody wins so if I'm the Rays I would look into that but that's just me um 528 here on crunch time again your poll question of the day is up on Facebook and Twitter with the College World Series getting started tomorrow. Your poll question of the day is, which national seed outside of LSU would be considered your favorite? Is it Florida? Is it Virginia? Is it Stanford? Is it Wake Forest? So far, 51% of you say Wake Forest. 31% say Florida, 11% say Virginia, and the other 7% going to the Stanford Cardinals. Salty Steve says, I think pitching will be the downfall of Wake Forest, so that makes Florida the only viable option. Hoping the final will be Tigers versus Gators. Always enjoyable to beat the SEC rivals. Hashtag go Tigers. James, who's your favorite in Omaha that's not LSU? It's kind of between Florida and... And Wake Forest, I guess you could say for me. I've always been an offensive type of guy, so seeing the offense that the Demon Deacons put up very often, it's kind of LSU-esque in a way. But it's an interesting stat that Andrew brought up. Mm -hmm. When Wake Forest doesn't hit a home run, they're 6-6 and on the season. Now, we've talked about it all week. Charles Schwab Field is a bigger park. The wind blows in. It's it's going to be a struggle to hit home runs. So, are we what, talking favorite to win outside of LSU or just correct. like just okay? Yeah, I, it, outside of LSU, which national seed would be your favorite to to win it? I'm going to go Florida. I would at that point. I was going Florida. I was thinking of just more personal preference than 
someone actually winning. I would, if that's the case, I would look more towards Florida than I would Wake Forest. I would look at Florida. Their pitching is an insane. Their offense, look, they hit a lot of homers, but they don't have to. Uh, they, they can beat you in a variety of ways with, with Jack Coglianone and then Wyatt Lankford. That, that's, a, that's a squad in Gainesville. So I look for them to, to make a run. I'm going to say, I, I'm going to agree with Salty Steve here. I think the final is Florida LSU. And that's going to be a dogfight. Cruz versus Jags, or Cags, I should say. That's going to be insane. Uh, so, so if it works out that way, that is definitely must see college baseball. And then you could you could just see it right now. Caglione's out there versus Dylan Cruz. Cruz gets an RBI double. Yeah. And you're like, see, this is why he was the player of the year. Right. Not Caglione. Yeah, I, I can't wait to to throw that out there. Um by the way. By, by by the way, the one one thing that is notorious with Omaha over the last couple of years is the Jello Shot Challenge. There's a bar called Rocco's in, in Omaha, and they have become notorious for setting up a Jello Shot Challenge, where the fans of each fan base there's a dry erase board behind the bar. And they write out the eight team names and they keep track of how many jello shots their fan base has purchased. Now, the jello shot is five dollars. Reason being is a dollar of it is going to get split up to charities. Fifty cents is gonna go to the food bank of Omaha. And the fifty cents is gonna go to the food bank of whatever university. So in this case, for LSU it would be the food bank of Baton Rouge. So that's why they raised it a dollar this year, was so that money could be di- diverted to the different institutions. Tennessee's at 28. Florida's at 40. TCU's at 47. LSU? 123. <laughs> they are off to a hot start, and LSU doesn't play for another 48 hours. That is wild. Sanford's at three. Wake Forest is at four. And Virginia is at six. Should be a very fun weekend in Omaha. I hope they have enough beer. We'll take a timeout. 5.33 when we return. We'll talk MLB score update. And we'll get you set for Astros Nationals tonight right here on the game. A recent survey discovered that game listeners prefer our station over watching a mandated webinar at work. Well, thank you, everyone, for coming to this exciting meeting today to discuss... Take that, productivity in the workplace. This is The Game, 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Just going to let the beat drop for a second. 5.38 on this Thursday, Matt Miguez, James Mesh. Welcome back to Crunch Time. James, you wanted to talk about the black and gold for a second. They made a couple of signings today offensively. Since you're the Saints expert, I'll I'll let you break down the, the, the signings and what they mean for New Orleans. Yeah, so Adam Schefter let us know a little earlier that the Saints reached agreement on getting former Bengals 
first-round pick, Billy Price. But then they also got running back Lynn Bowden and wide receiver Kiki Kuti. Which, I'm not really worried about Kiki, and I'm not really worried about Lynn. I don't think they're they're just mainly camp bodies. Oh, I don't know about Bowden. You don't know about Bowden? Bowden might make it. You think so? I mean, to be fair, with running backs, you never really know, but... I'm kind of looking at you. You've already got play receiver. I'm kind of looking at it with Camara. He's making the roster. Jamal Williams making making the the roster. roster. Kendra Miller making making the the roster. roster. You usually only keep four, so it's like, does Lynn stand out enough over the other running backs, especially with Dwayne Washington being there for so long? (laughs) Does he stand out enough? Dwayne, to be the fourth, Dwayne Washington is not that good. He's just not. But he's the, he's mainly there for special teams, right? And, and and that's fine. But and that's and that's mainly the reason. So it's like at that point, if you're the running back four, we're looking for you to be the special teamer. Does Lynn stand out enough to take Dwayne's spot? We'll find out. He definitely provides a, a level of offensive explosion. That I I don't know that the Saints necessarily need, but it's always nice to have a little extra. But with those signings, the Saints also did wave offensive lineman Yasir Durant, Malik Flowers, a wide receiver. That was surprising. And then running back Sir Roderick Thompson. Yeah, he was another one of the undrafted guys. Um, but my, Malik Flowers was interesting. I, I thought that they really liked him to be the return specialist, so that was... I was a little surprised to see his name pop up, uh, but obviously you're getting to this point where where mini camps coming to an end, and you know these these tough decisions are going to have to be made over the next six to eight weeks as we get set for the preseason. I know we've talked a lot about the College World Series, but I mean, what what else do you, do you talk about in June when the College World Series starts in 24 hours? This is interesting. Our, our guy Ben Upton over at 11.7 made this graphic and the odds on this on this graphic are the odds to win the College World Series and the odds are based out of Circa Sportsbook in Las Vegas. Now they compare the odds to win the title on opening day of the season to today. Okay, let's start with Wake Forest. James, at the beginning of the season, their odds to win in Omaha were plus 1,600. They're down to plus 225 today. LSU was plus 700 at the beginning of the season. They're down to plus 415. Florida was plus 1600. They're down to plus 415. Virginia, plus 5,000. They're down to 650. Tennessee, their odds got worse. They started the season plus 650. They're at plus 1,000. TCU, plus 6,000, down to plus 1050. Stanford, plus 1,400, down to 1,300. And then Oral Roberts. James, they weren't even in, and I'm not surprised by this, they weren't even in the conversation. Their odds on opening day are not applicable. Today, they're at plus 3,000 to lift a national championship trophy. What a story that Oral Roberts has been. 
and it's going to be masked by the fact that their t-shirt is horrible. Oralaha. What does that even mean? Get it together. Maybe like the ooh-la-la. I didn't mean it like that. You know what I meant. Oh, don't you do that. Don't you do that. I, I think part of you did mean it like that. I really didn't. Mm, mm, okay. Score updates from the MLB. The Orioles took down the Blue Jays 4-2. to two. The Rays beat the Oakland A's 4-3. to three. And then the Phillies took down the Diamondbacks 5-4. to four. Tonight, you've got Rockies, Braves, Angels, Rangers, Cubs, Pirates, and Guardians, Padres, just to name a few. And then, of course, you have the Houston Astros, winners of their last two, playing the Washington Nationals tonight. The Astros 39-29 and 29 on the season, while the Nationals are 26-40. and 40. The Nats will throw Mackenzie Gore, who is 3-5 on the year, with a 4.04 ERA, while Christian Javier will oppose him. A 7-1 win-loss record with a 3.13 ERA. The Astros won last night in rather odd fashion, James. Um, you, you start off with, in the first with a two-run double from Jose Abreu, and then Jose Abreu hits a homer in the fourth, and you're up 3 nothing. And then Jenny Diaz comes up, hits a homer himself to make it 4 to nothing, and you're feeling really good about yourself. And then in the fifth, the Nats get a run, and it stays 4-1 to for most of the remainder of the game. And then in the ninth, you give up three runs to tie the game back up. And then the Astros get the ball, bases loaded, grounder to the shortstop, throw comes home to get the run, and then they go to first to try to get the inning-ending double play. And... Jake Myers, he didn't look like he left the baseline or the base path, I should say. But the throw ended up getting away from the first baseman and Abreu was able to score. And they ruled it a throwing error by the catcher, uh, but there was a walk-off fielder's choice throwing error. I'm not quite sure how you would score all that, but the Astros ended up winning the game 5-4, to four. And the Nationals are livid about it to the point where the Nats manager, Davey Martinez, printed out a picture of the replay from the broadcast that shows Myers to be inside of the base path as photo evidence that he should have been called out. Now, upon second look, he's inside the base path. There's no doubt about that. Now, is it enough for it to be ruled base runner interference? Clearly, according to the umpires, it was not. And whether that was the correct call or the incorrect call doesn't really matter now. Because the call got made, the Astros won, and you move on. What's going to be interesting tonight, though, James, is can the Astros finish it off? Because you've got six more home games coming up after this. You're missing your star player in Jordan Alvarez for a while, it seems. 
can they use the momentum from their two wins and finish the job? Or will they be kind of, you know, we already won the series. We're kind of going through the motions. We're going to get ready for the weekend series against the Reds. Which Astros team shows up tonight? I think it's a team that ends up losing tonight. Because I, I don't disagree with you. Because it's uh, it's been kind of up and kind of down. But especially with teams, whenever they have like a crazy win like this where it comes down to the final play, it usually the next game, it feels like it's kind of disappointing because it took everything for you to get to that point. Especially since you gave up three in the ninth inning to make it four to four. And you had to come down to that play for you to win. It's not a complete science, but generally when a team has to have like a last minute play to win the game, generally the next game that they play, they end up losing. Now, what are we, what are we going to do with Alex Bregman? Cat went 0 for 4. He's hitting 243 on the year. And and I feel like we have this conversation every year and he always figures it out. But it's like I'm starting to have the conversation every day. <laughs> can 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 we just turn it on a little bit earlier? Please, just a little bit earlier in the season would be great. I'm not asking you to be hot from the jump. Turn it on in mid-May. Why are you waiting till July? Because that's what it is every year. From July to October, Bregman's going to be the man. Commentators will say, well, if he played like this all year, he'd probably be an MVP candidate. That's what they're going to say. But right now, you're looking at his 243 average and slumping at the plate and wondering, what's going on? Why did he take a step back? Because... Jeremy Pena's been out of the lineup the last two games. Jose Altuve is still working himself back in from his injury. And then Jordan Alvarez is out for the next four weeks. Wouldn't this be the perfect opportunity for a guy like Alex Bregman to step up and realize that or or to show that he still can produce in this lineup? Maybe I'm looking a little too far into it, but I, I just feel like now would be the opportunity, hey, Bregs, you've been a leader for the Astros since you've got here. How about you act like one? Again, just just my two cents, but Astros 7-10 first pitch, 640 pregame right here on the game. 103.7 Lafayette, 1041 Lake Charles with Robert Ford and Steve Sparks. We'll take a timeout and wrap up today's show right after this. This is Crunch Time on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles. Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. I'll tell you again, the Houston Astros will be looking for a sweep of the Washington Nationals tonight at the Juice Box. You can catch all the action live right here on the game with Astro Launch beginning at 640 and first pitch for Minute Maid Park set for 10 o'clock. That's live Astros baseball here on Southwest Louisiana Sports Station. From the Louisiana Raging Cajuns to the latest with the New Orleans Saints and Pelicans. 
Minkas and Mesh cover it all. I'm not worried. Uh, I think it's something that I can get under control. Now back to more Crunch Time with Minkas and Mesh here on The Game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles. Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Welcome back to Crunch Time. 555, almost 556. Wrapping up today's show. A quick update on the U.S. Open as that's still going on. Wyndham Clark through nine holes has taken sole or not sole possession. He is tied for third at four under with Harmon. Again, Bryson DeChambeau still at three under as he prepares for the second round tomorrow. A couple other guys making a run. Sam Burns is at three under through seven. Roy McIlroy through three under at six. Harris English starting his back nine. He is two under so far on the afternoon. Again, just going to be an incredible weekend of golf over in Los Angeles. You also have the College World Series getting underway tomorrow. Uh, We will talk about that tomorrow. Uh, We'll update you on the early games, get you set for the late games, and of course, the weekend as well. On tomorrow's show also, Wilson Alexander of The Advocate will join us from Omaha to preview LSU's run at a national championship and what it's going to take for them to get it done. I want to thank our guest today, Ryan Shumpert of Rocky Top Insider, for joining us talking Tennessee Volunteers. If you missed it, tune into RP3 and Company tomorrow morning from 6 to 9. He'll be on at 7.30 with RP3 and D'Lo and also Andrew Rogers of Herd at Sports for joining us to talk the College World Series and more. For the producer, James Mesh, I'm Matt Miguez. Be safe, be well, and give a hug to your mom and them. And we're back tomorrow for a Friday fun show, 4 to 6, right here on the game, Southwest Louisiana Sports Station. You're home for the LSU Tigers and the World Series champion, Houston Astros. Robert Ford and Steve Sparks, 40 minutes away with Astro launch, right here on the game.